I'd ask you to turn with me this evening to the book of the Acts and to chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. You remember what's been going on. The Pentecost sermon has been preached. The congregation of the faithful is now growing rapidly. Peter and John went up to the temple where the, the church in Jerusalem was gathering and they'd seen that man who'd been lame from birth and having no money to give him, nevertheless they spoke to him and in the name of Christ they made him whole as a demonstration and a testimony of the saving power of the name of Jesus and began then to preach in Solomon's portico or Solomon's porch, declaring again the name of Christ as the one by whom we may be saved from sin and death and hell. And then the priests and the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, have come upon them, angry that they're preaching in this name. They've arrested them. They've kept them overnight in custody. And then they've brought them before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. And they uh, have, the, they being now Peter uh, and John, but Peter is the spokesman. Peter has responded to their question about the power or name by which they have accomplished this miracle with a glorious declaration that it is by Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the man whom they had crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before them whole. And then that stone rejected, but made a cornerstone language. And a bold statement. If anyone, anywhere, at any time, in any place, is ever going to be saved from sin and death and hell, then it must be and only can be through the name of Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marvelled and they realised that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Let's pray briefly once again. Heavenly Father, you we serve, yours we are. Teach us what this means. Teach us to walk in the footsteps of our Lord Christ. Teach us to trust him, to know him, to adore him, to serve him well in our generation and to learn from Peter and John what that means, that we, O oh God, may do now what they did then, not again in the strength of man, but in the power and wisdom of Almighty God, we ask this in dependence on your spirit, with pleas for his present help, and in the name of this same Saviour, your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Again, if you read a passage like this, you really want to be reading maybe four or five chapters at a time, and even out loud. 
and you get a sense of the development, of the, the momentum, of the progress, of the, the tensions, of the realities that are taking place. Battle has been joined. This is the first open confrontation since the ascension of Jesus Christ, since his going up into glory. And it's taking place before us, as it were, in the pages of this history. This battle has its lines and the battle lines are being drawn around the identity and the activity of Jesus of Nazareth. Who is he? What power does he have? The proclamation of his name has been the flashpoint in this conflict and has become the real bone of contention. And the apostolic testimony in response to this pressure is bold. Verse 13, the Sanhedrin saw the boldness of Peter and John. It's the same word, the same idea as in Acts chapter 2 when Peter said, verse 29, men and brothers, let me speak freely to you. That is the really remarkable feature of the apostolic testimony. It's a word that comes up again and again, boldness or freeness. Now, it's not rudeness, it's not brashness, it's not snarkiness, it's not the sort of lip that a student might give a teacher when they, uh, they think that they're being cocky or so forth. It's, it's, a, it's a holy confidence. It's an unashamed, unrestrained, unreserved declaration. It's plain, it's clear, it's bold, it's free. It's men who are standing up with their faces lifted and without hesitation, without reservation, without shame, making something known. And all the more remarkable because of what these men had been and been like only a few weeks previously. What is taking place here? Well, again, we need to tie this in to things we've already seen because it's important when we work our way through these things that we, we see and feel the, the echoes, the parallels, the developments, the fulfilments from what has gone before. So remember what our Lord said to these men in Luke chapter 9 from verse 23, that if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's, and of the holy angels. The disciples are now learning what that really means. That's what's happening here. They're taking up their cross daily and they're following Jesus Christ. The path that they're on is recognisable. And that's why when we looked at Luke 20 this morning, I said, you're going to want to have this in your minds as we come to this evening. Don't worry, we'll, we'll show you where that is, but I want you to, to remember those connections. What you've got then in verse 13 through to verse 22 is the clash of courage and cowardice. We'll look at the cowardice first, and it's on the part of the Sanhedrin. The apostles come before these men. Now, I'm not going to dwell on this too much, but one of the things that I think it's worth you having in mind is the parallels, not just between what happens with the Lord Christ and his disciples, but also the fact that you have certain parallels between the Old Testament and the salvation, the exodus, and the wilderness experience of God's old covenant Israel and this new covenant Israel that are now being called out and called together. And typically what you will see is at least some kind of shadow, fulfilment motif, certain parallels, but you will also see the Lord sometimes doing something to prevent the problems that bedeviled old covenant Israel 
from recurring in his new covenant people, as if he's heading off some of the, the dangers that might have taken place. I say that because I find it hard not to draw some parallels and make some contrasts between Peter and John and Moses and Aaron, because Moses would have said that he is not ready of speech. And yet here these men are speaking boldly before the Sanhedrin. So let's follow this trajectory. What's going on with the Sanhedrin? First of all, you see the boldness or the freeness of men who are outside their system. And they've come up against a man like this before. So, for example, if you go back to Luke chapter 4 and verse 22... When the Lord Jesus had gone back to Capernaum, they all bore, or Nazareth rather, they all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Christ had the experience of standing, reading from Isaiah, speaking with unusual clarity and freedom in Nazareth, in the synagogue, and people turning around saying, hang on a minute, this isn't a proper rabbi. This is Joseph's son. He's not properly schooled in these things. Or again in Mark chapter 6 and verse 3, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are his not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. Why? Because they were listening to him. And they were angry that somebody who they know, somebody who's not high up in the pecking order, should speak in this way. And their response is to dismiss and belittle. You've not been properly schooled. You've not been properly trained. You don't have the right degrees, as it were. They consider them untaught. In their eyes, they are not fit to teach, and yet here they are speaking with this holy fluency, this freedom and this boldness. Indeed, if you go back to John's Gospel 7 and verse 15, the Jews marveled at Jesus how does this man know letters having never studied? And it's not far off the problem then that they've got, not now with Christ, but with the disciples of Jesus Christ. There's a boldness, there's a freeness, there's a clarity, there's a fluency that cannot come from the systems to which they are accustomed. For these men have not come up through the rabbinic schools. So you've got the boldness of men outside the system. And then you've got the evidence of the power that is being exercised. And I don't mean to laugh at them, at least not too much. But there are things in some of these episodes that, that bring a wry smile to our lips. What shall we do with these men? For indeed, it is evident that a notable miracle has been done through them to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Why? Because the man who hadn't been able to walk for 40 years is standing there with them. And Luke's emphasising that. For those of us who think that 40, you know, life begins at 40, it's a bit off-putting, isn't it, when Luke says, think of it. All the way to 40 years and he's never... Okay, well, easy, easy, Luke, but, but that's his point. For four decades plus, this man has not been able to use his legs. This isn't a sham. This isn't somebody who's been put in a wheelchair outside the big hall and brought up onto the stage for the faith healer to say, look, now he can walk again. For 40 years, he has manifestly, evidently been a crippled man. And now look at these things. He is walking. He is standing. Everybody knows and everybody can see. Now... Go back to chapter 21 of Luke. I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. That's what's being fulfilled. What is happening and what they are saying is irresistible. It is not contradictable. You cannot say 
that by the name of Jesus Christ, nothing has happened. Because the man who could never walk until a few minutes or hours at least before, hours before, is now standing there with his legs working. They might wish otherwise. And I think, again, that's where, if you just, as it were, step back and look in from the outside for a moment, you see again the cruelty. You see again that the shallowness of a rigid system. These men, they wouldn't perhaps say it like this, but you know what? It would be a lot easier if this man was still crippled. That's the sense of it. If he weren't the problem, remember when Lazarus had been raised from the dead and they tried to kill him because it made it a bit too obvious that there was power in Jesus Christ? Rather than marveling and rejoicing and wondering at the good done, they are frustrated, they are grieved that such mercy should have been shown because it makes their case harder to argue. They would prefer these things to be untrue or undone and again there's there's something there that we mentioned last lord's day people who have been delivered from darkness brought out from under the slavery of satan who have by god's grace and strength had their bonds broken who are to use the biblical language now clothed and and in their right minds sitting at the feet of jesus and rather than provoking wonder and praise Yes, they're glorifying God on one level, but you've got the Pharisees here who are saying, we wish it weren't so, because it it messes up our thinking. This is not what we want. Then you've got the tension of managing this situation. They put these prisoners aside and they confer among themselves. What shall we do to these men? We have a problem, they say. It's obvious, it's undeniable that a miracle has been performed. But we don't want this teaching and we don't want this name. So now let's severely threaten them that from now on they speak no more in this name. Let's go back to Luke 20. Tell us. By what authority are you doing these things, or who is he who gave you this authority? That's not now the question that they've put to the disciples. In whose name or by what power have you done these things? This was the question they put to Jesus. And he said, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. Same problem. We can't say this is God, and we can't say that it's men. If we say it's God, we have to admit that there's power in the name of Jesus Christ. If we say it's men, everybody's going to hate us because they're all glorifying God because this great miracle has been done. We are stuck. If we accept that in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, this man stands before us whole, then we, remember primarily a Sadducee group, those who don't believe in supernatural religion, we have to acknowledge that there is such a thing as resurrection because the risen Jesus has done this. We've got to accept that there is power from God, that there is life after death. How are we going to stop these people? We're afraid of the crowds. That's worth bearing in mind because the apostles will not always be protected by the applause of the people. Once the popular acclaim is out of the picture, the target is a lot easier to strike. But they've got this tension of managing this problem. What happens next? The resolution is to intimidate Again, we saw something of that in Luke 20. The Lord sends the prophets to the people. Let's beat them up. Let's abuse them. And then the son. Well, let's kill him and take these things for themselves. What do they decide? So that this this nonsense, this foolishness, this 
preaching of Jesus spreads no further among the people. Let us severely threaten them. Not just tick them off, let them go with a warning. Let's severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. They want to draw the lines hard and fast. They command them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. And you can hear in Luke's careful record the kind of intensity of the antagonism that comes from the Sanhedrin. What would we call these men? Bullies. Everything that they've done so far seems at least in some measure designed to intimidate Peter and John. They've arrested them. They've laid hands on them. They've put them in custody overnight. They've brought them out and they've put them in the middle of this half ring of the great and the good of the Jewish nation in Jerusalem. And they've challenged them. And now this group is ready to severely threaten them and to tell them that under no circumstances, not even a word concerning the name of Jesus of Nazareth is to come from their lips. It won't be long before they stop striking with words and start striking with swords. This is only going to escalate. But the spirit, the hostility is immediately clear. Why do the Pharisees do this? Because they understand fear. After all, they're terrified. That's why they can't make a clear decision. Because they're afraid of what the people think. That these men are constantly crippled by the fear of man. They call themselves those who obey God, but they're always worried about what other people think about them. And that's what dominates them. And, and their thinking is, is reasonably straightforward. We're afraid of what people think of us. We're afraid of what will happen if people don't like us. We're terrified about what will come to pass if we should disturb or distress the people. So we'll bully these men. We'll assume that they're like us, that they can be cowed, that they can be trampled on, that they can be trodden down. John chapter 11. Many of the Jews who had come to Mary and seen the things which Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. Don't you realise, said Caiaphas, that it's expedient, it's helpful for us, that one man should die for the people. Again, what the disciples are going through is what their Lord went through. The trajectory, the experience, runs more or less in parallel. They want to crush them and to stop this. And so there comes then a command to cease this activity. No more preaching in the name of Jesus. You see the sticking point? What's the problem? And brothers and sisters, what's the problem in our modern world? Anything but Jesus. Anything but the gospel of salvation entirely but only through the name of Jesus of Nazareth. You can believe almost anything, no matter how foolish, empty or vile. Self-contradictory and confused. But what you cannot say is that there is one name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What you cannot say in the world's estimation is that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father except by him. This then is the point at issue and this is where the matter becomes plain. In one sense we don't care what else you do or where else or how else you do it, but you are no longer to speak in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Do you remember the woe that our Lord prescribed to the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, 15? You travel land and sea to win one proselyte, 
And when he's one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides. These men will not enter in. And they will do everything in whatever power they think they have to stop any others entering in as well. They want to do everything they can to, to block and prevent. This is not some kind of strange first century situation. This is classic human reasoning. We don't like these men who don't fit our system. We cannot deny the power that attends what they say. We're not sure how to manage the tension because we're trapped by our fear of man. So we will bully and intimidate in an attempt to hold back their activity. And we will tell them, this will be the point, that whatever else you say or do, not one more word about this Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ of God. It is typical and it is current. Those of you who had the privilege of going out on the doors on the streets yesterday, did you really hear much different from what was going on in Acts chapter 4? Isn't this as much the spirit of the age now as it ever was? Isn't this what you come up against in your workplace, in your school, with your neighbours? Whatever else you do, however else you help, whatever other conversations you have, I don't want you to talk about this man, Jesus. And it doesn't take long before the veneer of British politeness falls away and you see a little bit of the niggle, a bit of the bite, a bit of the antagonism. We don't want him. Even more than this, how quickly these things become personal. They may not be able to deny the reality of God's power in Christ in your life. They may feel that you are not entitled to speak, that you, you know, you're, you're not a scientist, you're not a scholar. They may struggle with the fact that you may be one of the kindest, gentlest, happiest, most hopeful people that they know. The evidence is right there before them. But when it comes to the offering of Christ for salvation, when it comes to the power of the gospel, this is the crunch point. This is the sticking point. This we will not have. And if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. I wonder if these were some of the words that the Holy Spirit brought back to the minds of Peter and John as they stood before the Sanhedrin. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Brothers and sisters, it's not just that the world didn't like Jesus and it doesn't much like us either. Do you see the likeness in these two experiences? Do you see the, the very precise mapping of one over the other? The kind of hatred, the path of hatred, the point at which hatred is expressed the response, the persecution. The Lord Jesus isn't saying in a, just a sort of a general sense, 
that they didn't get on with me and they won't get on with you, but the way they thought about me, the way they've treated me, the way they've responded to me, the way they've reacted to me, you will go that path and you will enter by that same door and you will undergo that same experience. Brothers and sisters, there is in this world a pattern of hatred toward and hostility against Christ. And it is personal. It is not systemic in that sense. It's, it's not so much we don't like the doctrine. We don't want the man. We will not have him. May I plead with everyone here this evening to look into your own souls at this moment and to ask yourself again, what is your disposition toward Jesus Christ of Nazareth? Not whether or not you agree with a system. Not if you've become a member of a church. Not whether you've been baptised. Not how long you may have served in a particular sphere or office. But what about that man? Do you receive him as your saviour and your Lord? That is Christianity. And it is too easy still because of the way that God in his mercy has held back some of the open waves of this hostility for us to imagine that we are for Christ. But perhaps there are still arguments, still excuses. I will not have this man. I will not trust this name. Is there in you some angry resistance or pushback because of the person and the work of Jesus? Do you not want his yoke upon you? Do you find his government frustrating, irritating? Do you find his salvation unnecessary and invasive? The Pharisees may have been open about it. We need to be honest about it. We must bow the knee to Jesus of Nazareth. We must trust him for salvation. The cowardice of the Sanhedrin. The same cowardice they'd exercised toward the Lord Christ. The same hatred hands to some extent tied, but doing everything that they can to hinder and prevent the work of Christ. That brings us then a little more briefly to the courage. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, verse 13, they marvelled and they realised that they had been with Jesus. And then after this confusion and this counsel and this threatening verse 19 Peter and John answered and said to them whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God you judge for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard the first thing you've got here is a relationship that is being demonstrated this fury and frustration amongst the Sanhedrin and they've been engaging now with Peter and John in a number of different situations. I mean, after all, you can't preach the Pentecost sermon and see the Pentecost fruits without somehow bringing yourself to the attention of the authorities in Jerusalem. 3,000 people have been converted. Then the number of the men has come to be about 5,000. You've got this man standing in front of you who has been crippled for 40 years and is now entirely and manifestly healed. And you've dragged these men before you because they're preaching in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, the man whom you have crucified. And when you threaten and when you cajole and when you challenge, they come back to you with this polite but bold, straightforward declaration of the truth. And this is where I have a, a wry smile because I can imagine 
watching as a bystander here, and perhaps to some extent, if I'm not on the Pharisee's side, enjoying the dreadful dawning realisation of what's going on here. Oh, we've been here before. You know who they sound like, don't you? You know what's happening here. You know the path that we're on. These men have been with Jesus of Nazareth. That's what explains this situation. We've faced this problem. These men have got the same convictions. They're his disciples. They believe what this Jesus believed. They're speaking with the same clarity. We couldn't cow him and we cannot cow them. We cannot trample them into silence. They will not be bullied or cajoled. They've got the same confidence. Look at them now standing in front of us. Maybe they'll say, you wonder, don't you? Isn't that the guy who was... In the courtyard that time when we had Jesus of Nazareth under our guard? Didn't someone, wasn't it that slave girl of yours who asked it? What's he doing now? Standing up like this. Not sort of puffing his chest out and strutting. But without shame, without reservation, without fear. Looking us in the eye and saying, this Jesus I proclaim to you. There is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which you must be saved what has taken place here well they have been with Jesus they have imbibed his instruction and example and brothers and sisters the same spirit who was in him without measure is now in them this is post-pentecostal power these are men who under the sweet influences of the Holy Spirit with assurance, with conviction, with clarity, with confidence are declaring these things. And everything about their bearing and everything about their teaching makes very clear that these are the Jesus men. These are those disciples of his and they've breathed his air and they've taken in his spiritual food, and they've learned his lessons, and they are now replicating the teaching, the instructing, the declaring, the living of their master, Jesus of Nazareth. And John 7, verse 15, How does this man know letters, never having studied? They're asking the same thing now. Where do these men get this? They got it from the other man who'd never studied. This is the teaching of the Lord Jesus. Do you remember in the Sermon on the Mount how they marveled at him? Why? Because he didn't speak like the scribes, but as one who had authority. And the same note of divine truth is ringing out through this apostolic ministry, declaring without fear of men that Christ Jesus alone saves. My friends, does anybody ever get this from us? Now, they may not know Jesus and his reputation the way the Sanhedrin did. My friends, do we at least confuse people who don't know about Jesus? Do we at least leave them with the question, why are you the way you are? What has changed you? Where do you get this courage? Where do you get this clarity? Where do you get this confidence? Where does your joy come from? Where does your hope from? I can't explain you in worldly terms. And you want to say absolutely and you never will because the only thing that explains this is heavenly reality. And there may be some who have some notion. And as you explain to them that you are a follower of the crucified but risen Christ, the dots get joined up. And if they can't or won't, then you gladly will. Let me tell you why I'm like this. Let me give you a reason for the hope that is within me. Let me explain that I have not made myself like this. That this is not the, uh, the product of a, of a certain kind of upbringing. That this is not some sort of happy accident. That God has made me a certain kind of person, but I'm afraid he's made you a certain other kind of person. That I am the product of supernatural operations. And that, rather than making me a proud nut job, makes me a happy, humble servant 
of the living God. Out of our experience, have we proved the same? And will we then, because of that relationship to our Lord Christ, issue the same kind of response? Again, it's Christ-like wisdom and courage. Remember what the Lord had asked these same people about John the Baptist? God or men? What does Peter and John now say? Is it right for us to listen to you or to God? You judge. <laughs> I can't help it. I mean, I love this. This, this is that bowl. It's not just cheek. Say, so you, you can call this one. This is not a difficult question to answer. You who call yourselves the mouthpieces of the Lord. Should we listen to you or should we listen to God? You tell us. And as they did when the Lord Jesus asked them, where does the baptism of John come from? They're stuck. They find no way of punishing them. Who are the free men in this scenario? Is it the men who've been in custody? Is it the men who are standing in the dock? Yes. You'd have thought, wouldn't you, that they're the prisoners? But the prisoners are sitting in the big semicircle around them. They're the men who are chained by their dead traditions. The men who are chained by their fear of other people. The freest men here are the men who, perhaps even with chains on their wrists, are standing in front of their accusers and their intimidators, utterly unashamed, utterly unembarrassed, utterly uncowed, and who are doing what their Lord and Saviour always did, and simply turning the tables quite politely and straightforwardly on their accusers. This is spiritual liberty. Why? Because we owe our allegiance to God. And therefore, we're not afraid of you. We don't have to be. You can't do anything to us. You might be able to threaten us and imprison us and kill us, but not really anything meaningful. Because we're answerable to God. We're his spokesmen. We're the servants of Jesus Christ, the risen king. If he rises from the dead, do you think your threats of harm and death can do anything to silence us? We cannot but speak. We know these things. We've seen these things. We've felt these things. We've experienced these things. What might Peter have said? We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's what he wrote in his second letter, chapter 1, isn't it? These are not fables. We're not spinning the myths and imaginations of men. We've been eyewitnesses of his majesty. The other man who's standing here saying these things, what will he later write in 1 John and chapter 1? The things which we've seen and heard, which our hands have... We've been there. We know him. We've seen him. We've heard him. We have borne witness to the words that came from his lips. We have seen the mighty works which he has done. And we are commissioned by him in the name of God to speak, beginning in Jerusalem, of the salvation that he brings. Now you tell us, should we keep silent? Should we hold our tongues? Is it that hard to tell us whether we should obey God or you? What do you think? There's something about holy courage that I, I think it just it makes people furious, doesn't it? We're not stirring them up. We're not trying to provoke them. We're not poking a snake with a stick here. But the fact that these men cannot be made to fear men makes the fearful men all the more angry. Peter and John, we have a holy obligation to speak God's truth in accordance with what we know. 
like our Saviour Jesus Christ. You couldn't scare him because he lived before the eye of his God and his Father. And you can't scare us because we live before the eye of our God and our Father. And what of me? And what of you? How much of the apostolic spirit do we have? Not that we are apostles, but don't we have the prophetic word also made more certain? Don't you have the record of the eyewitnesses of his majesty? Do we doubt that Christ said what Christ said? That Christ did what Christ did? That our Saviour died and rose again from the grave? That he has ascended on high? Are his promises to us any less sure than they were to his apostles in the days when they fell from his holy lips? My friends, I don't think we need to say if anymore. But when, when this good news becomes a hate crime, will you obey God or will you obey men? When to declare that salvation is in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth alone and is not to be found in any other under heaven, when that declaration has become blasphemy, you might say, well, this is... a." Now, this, this is, if, if Caesar isn't Lord, but Christ is, the Romans would have considered that blasphemy at certain times and places. Are we ready to say, I know who he is. I know what he's done. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. I know whom I have believed. I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. And therefore I will go on holding to and speaking of my Saviour. When your good is evil spoken of. Now you might say, well, when, when that happens, don't worry, I'll stand up and be counted. Brothers and sisters, if we're not standing up to be counted now, I can assure you that when it gets hard... We won't be the first in line. It's when our friends now, when our colleagues now, when our neighbours now begin to turn the screw that the Sanhedrin turned in Acts chapter 4 that we begin to show that we will obey God rather than men. That we actually believe what we say we believe, who we say we believe. Why do we not provoke this? Is it because we've already learned to keep our silence, to hold our peace, to keep our heads down? How would we respond to this? Not if, but when the moments come when we need to take up our cross and follow our Saviour along the same precise trajectory through which he passed. What do you need? You need the consciousness of God. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. We live before him. We're answerable to him. And I need not fear you. For I fear him who can do more than kill the body. We need communion with the Son. We need to be with Jesus. We need to know him, not just know about him. We need to read, to learn, to study in the truest sense, to speak and to hear the voice of Christ as it sounds out of our Bibles. Are we the people who know about Jesus or are we the people who have been with Jesus? That savour of heavenly life. That likeness in word and deed and thought to our Redeemer. And we need the comforts of the Holy Spirit. 
Peter and John, not long before this, had been two men who had cut and run. Peter had been challenged by a slave girl and had denied his master with oaths. John, it seems, had not been put in precisely the same situation. He seems to have at least stayed. But they were ready to go back to their fishing. What has happened? The Holy Spirit has been poured out by the risen Jesus on you as much as on them. I am not saying that you are an apostle. I am saying that you are a true Pentecostal. This is one of those points where I get a little frustrated. Give me my words back. I'm a Pentecostal Christian. I'm a charismatic Christian. Because I believe in the grant of the Holy Ghost. And I believe in the gifts that the risen Christ has given to his people by the power of his spirit. I don't believe in some of the snuff and nonsense that goes along under those labels falsely applied. But I do believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, each of them in relationship with his church. And when I am conscious of my God, my Father, living for his praise... When I am in communion with his son, my saviour. And when I am depending upon the spirit who has come from the father and from the son. Then I am not left to rely on my natural boldness. I haven't got any. If any of you think that I am naturally good or find it naturally easy. To speak to people about the Lord Christ, even from a pulpit. You don't know me. My wife would tell you there have been occasions, perhaps when we're doing more uh, uh, public open air work. I once looked at a row of shirts. Three of them were white. I was, about to, I was getting dressed. It was a Sunday morning. I was going to go and preach in the open air before I went to church. I'm staring at them in a panic, saying to my wife, I haven't got any shirts. That's my native disposition. And I know it's the same for many of you. We're not left then relying on our native eloquence. It's not because you're cleverer than other people. It's not because you're bolder than other people. It's not because you've got greater natural fluency than other people that you speak of and for your saviour Jesus Christ. My friends, what you and I need as much today as anyone ever did and what is as readily available by the kindness of our God in heaven is the simple, sweet, holy courage of the people who have been with Jesus. Grant us that and not all the frowns of men will be able to stop us. Grant us that and we will see the kingdom of God come in ways that perhaps as yet we have only begun to hope and expect. May God make us a people of that order. In Jesus' name we pray.